Hey, Brian, you see anything out there? Nothing yet. You really worried about this Ash guy? Trust me, Brian, you don't want to run into Ash Parker from Gorilla Miniatures Games, the creator of Gamma Wolves, out here in the wastelands, even if it is on episode 96 of the On the Table Gaming podcast. Brian? Brian, you still there? Surprise, podcast! I guess you're going to leave it all on the table. <laughs> Uh-oh! I'm still okay. Can we just do a regular podcast? So for those of you tuning in for the first time, I'm Chase from On The Table Gaming, and my co-pilot for this episode is Brian the Builder, and we're talking with Ash Barker of Gorilla Miniature Games, game designer and content creator, and we're really excited to be talking today about the upcoming release of your new game system, Gamma Wolf. So Ash, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me, Chase. People might really know you from a lot of your Song of Ice and Fire content, although you put out content for so many games. For those of who might be out of the know, what is Gamma Wolves? So Gamma Wolves is a miniature agnostic, uh, which is a, just sort of like 25 cent word way of saying use any models you like. Uh, miniature game um, that's coming out November 26th from Osprey, uh, the big British indie game library publisher that I wrote in 2018 after I had a bunch of conversations with my game designer buddies um, at Adepticon about what makes miniature games um, sort of, I don't know, it, what makes a miniature game successful uh, or makes it not just successful, but like makes it sort of like have, I don't know, like a mass appeal or like a draw. And we were talking about lots of games that that had like, over the years stayed successful despite like maybe not being supported by companies anymore or like came out of nowhere and kind of blew up and had these like weird spikes of like popularity or, or whatever uh and and the reasons behind it sort of and one of the big things was was taking either interests outside of like the tabletop hobby and combining them with the tabletop hobby and great examples of that would be things like Gaslands which is this car combat game that came out of nowhere sort of in like 2017 I think mm -hmm. and it kind of blew up where you've got this like great DNA mix of like the car enthusiast and the tabletop enthusiast and when you bring those two kind of like manias together you get this like unholy sort of like <laughs> like fascination where people are just like going like there was there was a while in the in the gaslands facebook groups where people were just going to walmart and like emptying the shelves of like one dollar hot wheels cars and i mean like look what i got today and just like posting to each other and it was just it was it was like unhealthy you know what i mean like people are like what are you doing you just spent 50 dollars on hot wheels cars and you're a grown man and like <laughs> it, it was that kind of like where does that come from? Um, and you were like, how can we, we can, we can raise that up one notch here by having it be grown men who are super obsessed with like mecha combat. Well, that was it. It was, and it was robots, right? Well, the other example, the other great example we came to was Blood Bowl, where you had a miniature game that had been around for almost 40 years that actually hadn't been in like active production in, by the company that designed it by Games Workshop in forever. Hmm. But you had a gajillion little like off-brand miniature producers making like different teams for it. People were making pitches. There was like, I, this is a, a, a probably like not well-known fact, but the biggest wargaming tournaments in the world today are still Blood Bowl tournaments. Like wow. you can, you can find, yeah, you can find in, in Europe and the UK, you can find like 500 person Blood Bowl tournaments. It's, it's unbelievable. Like you, you can't find a 40K, like a single 40K tournament that big. There's these insane, massive, giant tournaments still for it. And it's because there's sports fans. You're mixing the, like, 
that like sort of level of obsessive like like fandom that people have with sports right with um tabletop games and so you get that this awesome mix of like passionate people and so we we just sat around the dinner table that night at defcon kind of spitballing like well what are some of the things that you know that there hasn't really been a thing in the market for um or a game for or that maybe you know there had been but it's kind of like quieted down and we came up with like the robots of the gunplay enthusiasts and um the mecha comp like mecha games where there's tons of mecha games like i shouldn't say that there aren't like mecha games in the market because there are and like some of them are some of the most sort of like classically famous games probably in the history of wargaming so things like battle tech you know like are, are are names that everybody who's a miniature wargaming probably recognize still but but they weren't use any models you want really they were usually tied to like their own model line and they were fairly like sort of prescriptive in like how you played them and so um we started looking at these all these awesome other modeling hobbies and one of the, the biggest ones is like the gunball hobby right making mecha, mecha like kits and they're these gorgeous model kits but for the most part they just sit on a shelf when you're done um and that conversation got me noodling when i got home uh and i just started jotting down ideas and then i pitched my editor at um osprey like a rough draft of the the core mechanics for the game and my sort of like core concept which was again like use literally any robot model you want you can use toys from the toy store dollar store kits like or like awesome cool gun kits, or you know tabletop wargaming miniatures from other various games um and you just fill in a base uh and they liked the idea so they i, I got a uh, a deadline and started writing to it and yeah it comes out this fall the the game itself is basically coming out of that idea of me sitting around being like huh i wonder what other toy soldiers are sitting on a shelf that no one's playing games with that that i could write a game for which is usually how i end up writing games so what were the game's influences what games really sort of inspired you i mean you your channel you've you've worked on so many different games like what rule sets do you look at and you're like oh yeah this this makes sense this works for you know a mech game that i want to build so two things i was really into like influence wise one either amazing or terrible to the people listening to it is a (laughs) mid 80s um uh where the world all of the world's conflicts are now solved by these like these like mecha combats and the the sort of like surviving nation states of earth have all agreed that this is how we solve our problems and the this the main star of it is the dude that plays dexter's dad in the tv show dexter and it was called robot jocks and it oh, was yeah. uh, it okay was a, i remember that you either consider it to be an amazing movie or a terrible movie considering like, what it was made <laughs> but that core concept of like there's only a few nations left on earth and they basically solve their problems through like fighting with giant robots was the, was sort of like the, the, my, in my head, like MacGuffin for, <laughs> well, how do you, how do you make a game where people can do whatever they want and use whatever models they want? And that still makes sense kind of like in the game universe. Um, and so the easiest way to do that is just have all of these, these combat suits be like scavenged. And the second thing was, I really wasn't interested in making a combined arms game. Cause you go like that one takes the, as soon as you're as soon as you're playing with infantry and robots and tanks it just kind of like it takes the the shine off of the thing you're trying to have be the feature of the game and i didn't want to do that and a bunch of people have already asked like when are you gonna put infantry and when are you gonna put planes in it and i'm like nope nope it's just robots and here's the reason why it's just robots it's it i wanted there to be like an environmental reason as to why it was just these things and it's that the, the world is the world is not just ended but like ended a long time ago 
And so the, 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 like the entire surface of the planet is even the seas are basically crusted over with like calcified sort of like um, mineral deposits. And like, you can walk basically from end to end of the earth now and you have to drill to get water. And like, you know, like the, the earth is messed up. You cannot survive outside of uh, some type of protective environment. And so everyone's living in these like either underground or like sealed arcologies basically. And the robot suits are versatile because there's no roads, there's no infrastructure, like everything's gone. There's massive storms that just wipe away everything as soon as you're, you know, out in the, the wastes. And because resources are dwindling so much, food, power, all that stuff, no one can, no one has the ability to go and recreate these, this infrastructure that would actually allow us to like move around. And so these mecha suits are basically being salvaged from like the old tech of the, the hundreds of years before when the final wars kind of like ended the, the planet to go around and and go grocery shopping effectively like you're just trying to drag stuff <laughs> back to your native arcology to keep it limping forward you know in the next like five years ten years whatever to keep the human race going and so there's four major arcologies and then a fifth faction which is made up of the security forces of what are called free stations which are like think of them as like most Eisley in star wars a free station is just like a port of call in between the major arcologies that um, people can like refuel or they can they can trade parts and all of kind of like the black market sort of like free market stuff happens there. One of the biggest challenges that Brian and I often have. So Brian and I have played games. Actually, we were talking about your channel because Brian and when we were, you know, like little kids, we would play HeroQuest and yeah. you've got some great HeroQuest videos on your channel. One of the hard problems, uh, one of the problems we often have is that when we go to find a new game, we kind of have to find factions that kind of fit both of our sensibilities and we kind of right. have maybe different ends of the spectrum. So maybe maybe we can pitch to you like kind of things we're interested in playing and then maybe there might be a faction that you might recommend that exists within the game that would maybe pair to our tastes. Sure, absolutely, yeah. So pitch me some ideas as to what you would want your robots so, to look so, like or be. You know, Brian, what, what kind of things do you like in a game? Yeah, for the, this sort of stuff. What kind of and what kind of robots do you like specifically? Because the feature Ooh. here is on like the the type of mechas. Like, what kind of mecha do you like? Do you like like the dancy ninja kicking sort of like Gundam style mecha, or do you like the big stomping like battle tech style kind of industrialized mecha? Like, what are you into? I'd say go for like more big stompy, but maybe also kind of, I mean, I always go some weird, you know. He likes the evil robot monster stuff. Like yeah, always... like, yeah, 40K, I was tearing in. So like, I, I, you know, definitely sort of the more alien. Okay. So, so then you would probably be the one that would be most into the Ghosts of Tiamat. So the Ghosts of Tiamat are the non-human faction in Gamma Wolves. And I say non-human in that they do still pilot mech, like mecha that were created by humans. Um, but Tiamat was one of like uh, sort of society's last attempts at saving the Earth. They created an orbital array that had been um, deployed into our atmosphere to try and salvage what was left of our atmosphere as a, as a huge processor. And it had its own AI and it was self-replicating by basically consuming old dead 20th century satellites to like repair itself um by this like huge cloud of nanobots but basically it was overwhelmed by just how terrible we were in the end warms mm -hmm. and so it's still up there the array is still floating around um but we're all dead <laughs> and, or like our societies have collapsed and it's run out of stuff to scavenge to keep replicating itself huh. it it cannot fulfill what it was designed to do like it uh -oh. cannot fix the atmosphere anymore because the atmosphere is effectively gone and so what it's doing now is it's sending its uh, it's sending its nano machines down to Earth to scavenge down there now. Oh no, itself. that's because its awesome. directives are still oh, operating, God. right? And so these nano machines come down to Earth and they they like co-opt and like operate um, our technology 
and so you've got what are basically these like ghosts in a machine. So you have these like pilotless mechs and pilotless vehicles sort of crawling around doing all the same scavenging the humans are doing, but they don't have any of the human problems. Like they don't care if their casings get cracked open in combat because there's nobody in there, right? They just take damage until they explode basically. Um, and they, they, the offset <laughs> for that is that like they don't have the same motives we do. So they don't really trade. They can't visit free stations. Their pilots never get skills. Their pilots never become like legendary, but they're this kind of always efficient, never like they basically fight until the last like arm is blown off their, uh, their Mac sure, sure. Um, dudes. Yeah. That sounds, you know, definitely up my alley. Well, you're usually the hard one to fit in here. So I, I prefer to play like, uh, the kind of underdog average Joes who have to like get by or like, you know, have to sacrifice for the greater good. Uh, I played free folk and I like swarm and it's like, we're not great, but like, we're going to get by through like sweet human hardiness and like endurance. So, so you have kind of two choices there. Um, and they're, but they're kind of polar opposites. So, okay. um, there's North star and there's, um, Bolshev and they're both very different. So North star is the remnants of the North American Alliance um which well, that's is us. That's which a... is which is us they're, they're holed up in an arcology um but the the and and they they kind of espouse to still be like all about sort of like equality and freedom and stuff but really they're just kind of a slave state where um you don't there is no that's like you have like mandatory military service and there is no real like equality there's a, a ruling class of like the um the sort of like military leaders that are controlling the arcology and you you're you you have access like so basically everyone has access to frames of any given shape or size they have they have preferences and stuff but mm-hmm. really sets a, a different arcology apart is their their training level of their pilots you get a lot of burnout in the the pilots in north star because they get sent on suicide missions they get sent to try and like accomplish things that oh, so it's kind of like vital gone amok is that what the a, a little bit yeah okay um, and so the, you have access, you're forced to take a lot of rookie pilots because the churn is really high in their military and you're only allowed to have a single trained or veteran pilot for every rookie pilot in your crew when you, when you start off. Hmm. Um, and, and they also have a, uh, their, their veteran pilots are think of like all of the veteran pilots as being Lieutenant Barnes from platoon. Um, <laughs> like they're just all him, uh, and, uh, and none of them are willing to foe. And so, oh, sadness. And so sad. they're, well, they're, all right. So, so their special rule is that um, uh, more meat for the grinder. Uh, the 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 veteran pilots, if there's a closer rookie pilot to them, whenever they're taking fire, can shrug hits onto the rookie pilots basically because they just don't care about them. They just realize there'll be another one to take their place, and they just kind of like shove them forward into the the line of fire. Um, and the flip side of that is Bolshev, and Bolshev is basically. Um, the Eastern Bloc of Europe's survivors who a little kind of Metro 33 are living in like a giant underground war that extends from Paris all the way to Minsk. Um, It's been like dug out basically. And they are uh, more of a collectivist like um, society. So military service isn't mandatory. It's all volunteer. Uh, And they tend to have more trained pilots than anybody else because they actually have like a decent training program. Um, the problem is that they're 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 very reliant on like heavy mechs. Most of what they're co-opting into service for their uh, Gamma Wolf crews are like old industrial mechs that have been retrofit. So they don't tend to have the agility and the speed that the other teams can can muster. They, you you can only have X number of lights, typically only one. 
um and that makes them more expensive to repair because one thing with the heavy the heavy mecha frames is that they the more armor you blow off in a campaign the more you have to repair them in between rounds so you can take a lot Uh, of damage right makes you very effective yeah but you're spending a lot of the parts that you find to bolt the 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 plates back onto these things (laughs) Um, that's awesome well and also the you're, you're also finding old tech and stuff in your during your your missions a lot of the old tech is just totally useless to a gamma wolf team it's just called civilian old tech and it's a catch-all term for yeah the the, the people back at the arcology are going to be interested in this um but it doesn't really have any value to us you know so like think of it as like um you find like a ruined hospital and there's a ton of like ekg equipment or like you know like a sometimes like spectrometer that you can haul back it doesn't really benefit you on the in the in the crawler but the doctors and the scientists back at the arcology can be really interested in it. But then every now and again, you'll find something like a particle accelerator that you could bolt to your heavy frame and you know augment its energy weapons or whatever. And that you're going to want to keep. So the problem is that every time you go back to the arcology, they demand that you give them some of their old tech. Because that's <laughs> the point of you being out there. So uh, you, want, okay. you, want to, you want to balance finding the civilian old tech with the stuff that you want to keep on your frames. Because you got to give them something. Oh, Very interesting, often. interesting. Yeah. And so you have a choice between every game of going back to a free station or going back to your, your arcology. If you go back to your arcology, they'll resupply your frames, they'll fix everything for free, but you got to give them old tech. If you go to a free station, you can get your old tech mounted to your frames and you can spend parts to repair it, but you're, it's going to cost you more in the short term to, to get yourself up and operational. So you can, the, the, that sort of like balance becomes important when you have a heavy frame and you know, you're, you're more likely to want to go back to the arcology. So they kind of balance the fact that they can't get, they, they don't gain as much old tech. They can't grab resources as quickly because they have heavier frames that, that are, you know, more durable and can often do more damage. Um, but then they, they're forced to visit free stations and stuff because if you don't go back or if you go back, if you go back and uh, you don't have any old, um, any, uh, any uh, old tech to turn in, right, to your, your administrators and stuff like that, then they, the one, they won't just give you like fresh frames. They give you um, mothballed frames. And so they give you like a new frame, but it's got half of the like, systems like already damaged because it's just like, gotcha. it's, some junk, it's some junker they have. <laughs> it's just like, like a used car salesman. Like, they're like, yeah, 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 here you go. This is great. Trust me. Yeah. They give you, they give you C3P out. They're like, oh, oh. yeah, I guess you could have this thing. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it, it speaks to the, whatever, the digital language of moisture evaporators. That's about all it does. Um, but, you know, if you come back and try to give them tech, they give you whatever you want. So those are the two kind of options you have for those, like, sort of middle-tier um, John Everyman kind of um, uh, um, arcologies. But then the other two human arcologies are Hinode, which are kind of the breadbasket left of the world. They're um, uh, an Asiatic uh, arcology that's buried itself into Mount Fuji. And because they have access to almost unlimited thermal energy, they do most of the um, food growing. And all the other arcologies are very reliant on trade with them to to get their food, okay. because they can pr- they can produce heat. They're not freezing to death because outside is the atmosphere with the atmosphere stripped away. There's no greenhouse effect left, and uh, things is bad on the on the surface. You can't really grow anything. So there's some limited ability to greenhouse in the other arcologies, but nothing like Hinode, which is basically built around an active volcano to produce heat and energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a they have more preference for like light and medium frames um and their uh their sort of sensibilities sociologically tend to do with apprenticeship and so all of their pilots they have a similar pilot structure to north star but it's a more positive one where they have like a masters and apprentices style um thing where the veteran and trained pilots will always take a rookie pilot under their wing and as long as the rookie pilots can can draw like a line of fire to their veteran pilot they get bonuses to their abilities 
But if the veteran pilot goes down and they can't see them anymore, then they lose that bonus. Okay. So they're they're reliant on it. So they they kind of punch above their weight, even though they're they're firing with um but then like frames and layer technology, they 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 kind of coordinate and they can fight at a higher sort of like skill level than the the other pilots of their same training level. But a cunning opponent can kind of try to like take advantage of that and like kind of take out the veterans then. You got it. If you take out the veterans, or even if you just use things like um creating obstructions to line of sight between the two frames where they or they can't communicate with each other. Because there are abilities in the game that can allow you to do that, you know, smoke blind garages and stuff like that, or just actively um, creating sensor decoys and stuff, and you, or even just spinning the frame around so it can't see it anymore, uh, you'll be able to kind of disrupt that that bonus. And the last one is the Berg, and the Berg is um, the remnants of like a scientific coalition based in South Africa um, that had been using experimental like genetic. Uh, research to try and create a, a, a human species that could live on this new earth so they're like captain america's they're just like mm, super serum people more like no more like roy batty or the the replicants from blade runner where oh geez okay where where that whole idea was really good in theory until the scientists decided that maybe it would just be easier to clone people that could just serve them and then make themselves immortal um and so you you never it's very hard to get veteran pilots from the berg because they only have a 15 year lifespan and oh so man they okay tend to, they, they burn bright and hot but they're a lot like um they're a lot like the uh the pilots from the ghost of tiamat the nano so like the nano machines infesting robots and they don't take damage from the atmosphere so if you're if your um hull gets cracked and the atmosphere starts leaking into your frame you don't take the damage that the normal humans do because you're just you're immune to it you don't care about the soup you don't care about the gross gaseous soup that's outside um and so you again you, your pilot mix is a little bit different and you like all kinds of different frames um but you're you're gonna have a you're gonna have a, a point at which the you go to carousel and the the like the stone in your hand glows red and you're no longer able to to be alive anymore so they're a kind of interesting sociological experiment um and over time as i write expansions for the game and stuff too it's going to allow access to different like skills and talents and um equipment and sort of like story arcs and stuff uh for all the different arcologies but the, the core the core mechanics are oh geez oops are you okay yep my bad <laughs> sorry the core <laughs> mechanics as i knock everything off my table with my shoulder <laughs> uh the, the core mechanics, mechanics they're here <laughs> so i was gonna say did you just get ambushed <laughs> um the uh the core mechanics of the game right now are, are sort of revolving around that that um these are these are manufactured post-human people uh that can survive sort of on the surface of the planet so i'd love to talk about some of the kind of mechanics that you've worked into this the, i love the lore and i think all the factions are really cool plus you know i'm just excited that you know brian it sounds like both of us can find a faction that we can enjoy in this game sure um you know, a lot of games that uh, we're, you know, I'm playing now, in you know, Song of Ice and Fire, I started to do a little bit of Marvel Crisis Protocol. There's oftentimes talk about like activation advantage or having a system for like determining priority for the turns. You know, have you, uh, how does it work in Gamma Wolves? It's interesting. Gamma Wolves has four key phases. There's the initiative phase, of course, where you're determining the um, sort of like active uh, first player in each round. Um, and the, the, the biggest thing about the initiative phase is, again, that canny opponent can kind of take advantage of the table um, or just run a smaller frame team to gain initiative. And it's because the, the amount of frames that you have locked, that your opponent has locked to, is your initiative value. So the more of your frames your, your opponent can see, the, the chances of you going first go down. 
right? And the less, so basically the, the uh. premise here is if you're sneaking around, so either if you are lurking behind train and can't be seen, or you're just running a smaller, more agile, easier to coordinate crew of frames, you're going to gain the initiative each round. It also means that the underdog, the guy who's taking casualties and is more damaged, is going to slowly creep the initiative back in later rounds of the game because there's not as many people to coordinate left. That's awesome. And so that's a core mechanic where you can either have a larger frame crew and try and lurk them out a line of fire to, to maintain the initiative or at least balance it out. And if, you, if you're tied number of frames that, have, um, that your opponent has active line of fire to, then you dice off. But it's, it's something where you can actually manage it too, right? Like you can just, you can maneuver frames out of your opponent's line of fire to, so that you know that you'll gain the initiative next round. And then the way that movement and shooting works is the two following phases, the maneuvering phase and the gunnery phase are blended. You can move and shoot in the maneuvering phase and you can shoot and move in the gunnery phase, mm-hmm. but you're emphasizing one over the other. So what happens is when you maneuver in the... Um, the maneuvering phase there's two resources that you're managing you're managing your pilot stress when you're the reactive player and you're managing your your frames reactor stress when you're when you're moving and these two opposing resources reactor stress and pilot stress are both emphasized in each phase so when you're in the maneuvering phase which happens after initiative the person who has initiative maneuvers their frame first and the bigger your frame is and the heavier its reactive uh, reactor is the more times it's going to get to maneuver but the, fur- the shorter distance, it's probably going to maneuver when it maneuvers. So like a lot of people, it's, it, it, it's hard to wrap your brain around until you actually physically play the game. They wonder why this giant frame with these huge long legs only moves two inches when it maneuvers. That has nothing to do with the distance it's going to travel over the course of that phase. That has to do with the fact that it's taking longer to go the same distance because it's bigger and heavier. Right. So it's it's oh. a bigger it's a bigger profile, it presents a bigger target. Yep. There's more time to shoot at it and it's more lumbering and it stays in view longer. And so if it has a reactor level of six attempts to move, it can move six times two inches, where a light frame, which only has a two-level reactor, can move eight inches twice. Right. And that's just designed to to show that if you if you have two levels of reactor stress that you can be placed under, you'll learn it, you'll move 16 inches when you maneuver. Right, but you're only going to trigger enemy fire twice because every time you maneuver, you trigger the opponent your opponent's ability to shoot at you by putting stress on its pilots. That 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 twitch factor. Yeah, so you're, you're balancing the pilot stress. So every time something maneuvers in my line of fire, I can choose to fire at it by by in, by gaining stress on my pilots, and then vice versa. If I have reactor stress remaining when I when I opt to pass into the gunnery phase, when both players stop assigning maneuver frames you place pilot stress on to fire your weapons. And so you never fire your weapons at full effect in the maneuver phase, but you can you can put fire on people as they creep towards you or even shoot them as they get away um, at, a, at a sort of like a reduced effect. And then vice versa, the same thing. When you evade, if you still have reactor level left on you and someone decides to shoot you, you can evade and you'll move in the gunnery phase, right? So you have to decide how much do I want, like how much do I want to move in this phase? How much do I want to move in that phase? So in the in the the maneuvering phase, your gunnery level is reduced, but you move farther. And in the gunnery phase, your maneuvering is reduced, but you shoot at full effect. And you are going back and forth with your opponent, activating frames and trying to balance these two resources going into an engagement. And then finally, you have the war clock, uh, which is the the sort of like resource counter that everyone's running under, and every scenario has a different war clock. They tend to range around forty to fifty. 
So the each player individually running their war clock. And the war clock is how long can we fight until we don't have the fuel left to get back to our crawler and we all die. <laughs> And you, so, can really, you can really mess up. <laughs> and that's it. Well, that, so as soon as your war clock expires, your team bugs out. Because no matter how much you're paying these guys, they're going back to the crawler when they're right. when they get when they get to bingo fuel because they don't want to die. They want to choke to death out there in the sea of destruction. Um, and and your war clock reduces by the amount of reactor stress you have on your collective frames at the end of a round. Okay. So during the cooldown phase, which happens after the maneuvering the gunnery phase. Everybody cools down and they all make a, a technical test to see how much heat they can shed out of the reactors and how, how online their frames can be after whatever exertion it's just had. And then every point of reactor stress you reduce by reduces your war clock because that's you running out of fuel reserves, right? And so, again, heavier frames, you can run as many heavy frames potentially as you want, but they're heavier reactors reduce the amount of time you can stay on the table and, and fulfill your mission and find tech and fight your opponent and stuff like that. And both players are running under their war clock. So managing your, managing your war clock is a big deal because you're trying to finish the mission while still having enough fuel to get back. And this, if one war clock expires before the other, whatever's left on the table belongs to people that still have frames and the other guys bug out. And they can potentially drop what they're carrying even in their, in their, like, their haste to leave. So that's, the, that's kind of the core mechanics of the game. Um, and it's this... I was really happy with the, the... Because what I was trying to go for was how do you... How do you make it a duel between giant robots? How do you make it feel like both sides are always active? And the idea there was that you're both, you're managing this push-pull of your reactors and your pilots, like, stress on them um, as they try and react and shoot. And that once you're exhausted, like, if, you, if your reactor's at full and your pilot stress is at max, you're just standing there taking fire because you're inside a giant robot, right? So those are the, if, if, if every turn is maybe 10 seconds, you know, how much stress are they under for six of those 10 seconds before they basically just become a, an almost immobile target, right? And they can't react anymore and they just start like getting shot like a sitting duck. Um, and then it resets every round. The pirates take a breath and they shed reactor stress and then it goes into a new round. And hopefully you've got the resources left to fulfill your mission as you, as you sort of reset and attack each other again. That's awesome. And then the other, we were also looking at the, uh, you have like a contact system. Um, and Brian, That's for deployment. We, we... Yeah, so the contact system for deployment is... One of the things I never liked about deployment in games is that you can automatically see what things are, uh, typically when you put miniatures down in a miniature game. And I wanted it to feel like you were slowly revealing your opponent's forces. So the contact markers are basically just um, like plain templates the size of the base of whatever you're deploying. And as soon as one can draw a line of fire to another during the deployment phase, they get revealed. So it's like a double-blind deployment system. So the first, the first frame to always go down is just a template. It's just a marker. Mm. You, don't know what, you don't know what it is. And then as I counter-deploy you, I can choose to say the line of fire or deploy something that can see that thing to try and determine what it is. And so you can, end the, you can start the game with a few things that still haven't been revealed and you don't know what they're armed with. You might, you'll, you'll know how big they are. You'll know what the base sizes because your sensors can tell there's something big moving over there there's something small moving over there but they don't know exactly what it is until you gain lock on it so until you can draw any kind of even obscured line of fire to the to the contact it doesn't get revealed on the table and you don't have to tell your opponent what it is and so there's that it, it's a it's a deploy counter deploy mechanic and it's pretty simple because you literally um we just made those through uh um death redesigns just printed me some clear templates that are in the standard base sizes 
and you just put them down back and forth and you might reveal your frames during deployment you might not depending on where you put them and as they move around unless they take some type of offensive action like fire an indirect fire weapon you don't have to reveal them to your opponent the contacts just kind of move what do you think of that, Brian? Because I know you've always enjoyed that sort of element. Yeah, definitely. I think that to add another um, aspect to the games, like usually that's not, you don't see that too often in miniature games, as you're saying. It's, it's a it's a cool concept of like sort of adding that sort of stealth and the bit of the unknown to the yeah, game. Yeah, fog of war, right? Like that idea of like there's a little bit of a fog of war that, that you're trying to like guess your opponent through during the, the deployment phases. Yeah, that's cool. And it's pretty simple because I mean, we're talking about probably at most so so the, there's no point values in gamma wolves the balancing factor is that you're always going to have the same amount of pilot value on the table and pilot ah. value is pilot value is your goes right so every pilot has a pilot value basically based on their training level um and that's tied directly to the, the amount of pilot stress they can take which is actions in the game right hmm. so if you have a if you have it and and then i didn't really need to assign point values to the the frames themselves because the the more heavy frames you take the more you affect your war clock so you're you're if you decide you don't think nothing but heavy frames i mean if your arcology lets you do that because you could like in bolshev you're potentially deciding like okay i'm just gonna have my war clock go down by 18 points a turn and i'll be bugged out by like the end of round two and a half <laughs> you know what i mean or i don't even move and so because there's there's like franchise in that decision because the the player chooses to do that and knows the consequences of doing that you're 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 self-balancing there right what you mm. do have is you have uh, a pilot value budget which is 12 in, in every game again wolves so even later on when your crews are leveling up and becoming experienced and you've got like four veterans on your on your frame crew and a couple of rookies and a couple of trained guys you're still choosing to deploy only 12 pilot value of them, right so a trained pilot has a pilot value of three and a, and a veteran has a pilot value of four so if you took if you took nothing but rookie pilots you only have six frames Right. If you take nothing but veteran pilots, you only have three frames. And if you huh. take a, an ace or a legendary pilot who have a pilot value of five, potentially, like a veteran ace, uh, actually, if you had an ace legendary pilot, they'd have a pilot value of six. You'd have a maximum of two pilots then on the table. So you're not talking about a lot of miniatures, right? So that like double blind deployment thing becomes less of a big deal all of a sudden when we're talking about like, you know, there's not, there's only so many models. That you right. Have on the table. Speaking of miniatures, it's a really interesting thing that uh, you're doing, you know, have basically sort of letting them provide the miniatures, leaving it open for them to sort of, you know, come with a miniature that sort of fits what they want for the yeah. army, whatever Here, they want. Here's a base, fill it, fill it up with whatever you want. Exactly. And that's, and that's a really cool concept. It's, it's interesting too. It seems like it's, you know, I mean, most other war games, you know, you kind of having your own miniatures gives the game sort of a, uh, an immediate identity, right? You sort of, like, these are your war, war machine, Warhammer so miniatures, I've, or these are your war machine miniatures. Or... I've, I've worked long enough in the miniature wargaming uh, industry to know that I never want to produce miniatures. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is, a, that is a, 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 an absolute nightmare of like, of like yeah. keeping track of things. And the problem with producing miniatures is as soon as you make miniatures, you inherently are discouraged from writing interesting rules uh yeah. interesting okay be, be, so so this is we've talked about this before chase actually when we talk about um ip-based games where yeah there, there's like we talked about this with uh, star wars yeah right? where it's like we loved x-wing x-wing was great but how many colors of x-wing can you sell right you know what i mean like how many colors of tie fighter are there eventually going to be like you you run out of you run out of um 
of sandbox eventually and you hit the edges and you, and you can't start creating your own things because you, it doesn't belong to you. And that happens as soon as you make miniatures, right? It, it, you've, you've inherently created, oh, this is the correct way to play Johnny. And so you have to write to that as well because you're, you're disincentive. Like there's no incentive for you to write rules for things you don't make miniatures for because you want to sell those miniatures. And yeah. that's, that is, that is a thing that, that, that the sort of like indie game community has has 180 on and gone like well no like this it, our our customers are smart and the people who are 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 into this kind of game anyway they don't want to be told what miniature to play with because even if i made a line of miniatures they'd go off and make their own anyway right so 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 don't be bothered with making miniatures give them a sandbox to play in and let them and let them build their own sandcastles and so that was the idea behind gamble wolves that was the sort of that same dna um yeah. as as these other sort of metro agnostic games like frostgrave or this is not test or um you know uh uh gaslands yeah. where it's here's the rough size the thing should be go forth and be creative or or last uh, last days zombie apocalypse yeah. sure that yeah. game yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've heard of that game <laughs> but yeah not, i mean I, I i'm terrible you... at things <laughs> i i think that also lets you sort of kind of have your your rules first and balance first. I imagine happens a lot of times with certain companies where they produce, you know, they're tr they're trying to sell a miniature. Well, what do you do with that miniature? You want to make sure that people are going to buy it. So you throw some sweet rules at it to sell, get that out the door. And sometimes, you know, that could probably not uh, lend itself to maybe balance or you know leave people waiting for their own miniatures to come out and feeling you know, maybe less, less sort of supported well, in the meantime. In the industry, the idea is, are you creating a product or are you creating an experience? And, mm, and yeah. most, most indie game designers are interested in creating an experience. And, mm. and that means that you're leaving how that experience goes to the imagination of the consumer, right? If you're creating a product, everything needs to be in support of the sale of that product from the packaging through to the things, the components that come in it. And there's a very, there's a very big difference between product design and game design. And, and mm -hmm. the, the thing that I can show you that, that, that I think probably can maybe explain that to layman the best is um, you look at something like Fortnite, right? Fortnite is just Daisy with microtransactions. All right. Right. And Fortnite is very much designed to be a product. It is a consumable. Here is a thing we give you for free. And because we gave it to you for free, you are the product, right? There's that old saying in, in, uh, in, in industry, if you didn't pay for it, then you are the product, just like right. Facebook and just like whatever else, right? Like sure. it, you, you, your microtransactions and your engagement with this and, and, and the amount of advertising we're going to put inside of this is, is the, the way that we're going to make money. And so even, even though functionally that game is a copy of like a half dozen different open world, you know, dive in games that were, that were made before it it was designed as a product. So the product is um, a, a way of selling these microtransactions and a way of selling these um, sort of additional add-on things that, that, that we want, like the banana man suit or whatever the, <laughs> whatever the hell extra. So all extra I'm hearing thing. is that there won't necessarily be banana man suits and gamma wolves. Uh, I don't think there will be banana man suits and gamma wolves. I'm going to make one on their I mean, own let's, now. But... Let's, not, let's, not, let's not, you know, pigeonhole me into to never, but like. That's actually an interesting thing, right? Because you have you know, in, in it's something that people love to do, which is customize their own stuff. And that's sort of the disadvantage of most, I mean, not, you know, anyone's allowed to like mod and 
they do do great jobs of like customizing their miniatures and whatnot. But I guess in the end of the day, you're sort of following sort of the brief of, okay, what can this thing be and how, how different yeah. can it be? So it seems like it sort of opens up this a, a door for, okay, you know, maybe you can work for, work with these miniature producers to basically be like, okay, you know, you want to make miniatures for Gamma Wolves. You know, here are the rules, here are the kind of weapons and stuff, and maybe you could get some sort of partnership going or something like that. To, I, I think you what know. you'll probably end up seeing a lot of for Gamma Wolves is, so So we, we came up with them during playtesting, and Death Ray already has them for sale, but we made some um, sort of base huggers. So first of all, it's bases. The, the number one thing you need for Gamma Wolves, really more than anything else, is just bases in a, in a variety of sizes. And, mm. and the base the base size we give in the rulebook are suggested based on, here's what here's about how big typical miniature wargaming giant robots are and here's about how big action figure and toy ones are so like it's basically is this a toy slash gundam scale or is this a 28 mil miniature scale right like what are you operating it other than that's a spectrum so if your gaming group agrees we're going to use this size of base for lights this size for medium and this size for heavy frames then yay it doesn't really matter and i don't expect there's going to be enough gamble wolves players across the world getting together for like a gamble wolves giant event that it's ever going to matter if your you know small medium and large bases are slightly different sizes than my challenge it just it just i mean <laughs> gamma world invitational 2021 let's make it a thing i'm gonna call it gamma con or something yes something i'm coming uh, we're going to actual size here, gonna so. right, i'm gonna yeah. show up in my own mech suit and just kick everyone's toys over we're gonna, we'll go to the next uh whatever the next uh what was that that thing they had the the, the national robotics fight or whatever where like, yes. uh, they made yeah. that giant japanese robot to fight the giant american robot That's it. I, all i'm hearing is sponsorship <laughs> give me some of that sweet internet money um <laughs> and uh and yeah so like I'm not, I'm really not super worried about the, uh, the base sizes and something. I don't think that's going to be a, a big issue, but as long as you and your gaming group kind of agree on it, then yeah. hooray, we've, we've got our, we've got our agreed base sizes and we go, we play the game. We have a good time. And Do you have any favorite companies or, uh, that are putting out independent figures or 3d printed figures that you might recommend? So there's a huge list of them in the book. Um, but the ones that, that like, will you'll see in the book are, um, uh, Immortal Kings made the beautiful Berg miniatures that I have. Um, Xandri Four and Whisper made a bunch of miniatures, and and like I said, there's gonna be a there's gonna be a listing in the book for everybody mm -hmm. to see. And then like all the usual suspects too, like you've got um, you know Infinity and Corvus Belly making beautiful miniatures. Games Workshop's got tons of robot bits. You can co-op tau stuff into this. Like it's it's really what do you want it to look like? Like you could just as easily play gambles with your 40k adaptive mechanicus models you know what i mean if you wanted to against somebody's chaos robots like it it, it really is up to you how you want to interpret the world of gambles and what you want to fill up your base sizes with but i think that's going to be the fun i think it, i think more people are going to build gambles robots than are going to actually play the game and if that's all that happens i'm totally fine with that because a lot of times people just need an excuse to make a collection of miniatures and enjoy them. And if maybe twice a year they put them on the table with their friends' collection of miniatures and have a good time with it, then I'll just dust my hands off and be like, yay, mission accomplished. You know what I mean? Like I, yeah. I, I think that's I think that's the that's kind of my personal goal for a game like this is just to get people playing more games. Um, and, and building more Toy Soldiers and just taking that satisfaction from, from building the Toy Soldiers they're building. So I know, you know, all sorts of people listen to the podcast, but a lot of them play a Song of Ice and Fire, the miniatures game. You know, why might Gamma Wolves be a great game to pick up if you're playing a Song of Ice and Fire, the miniatures game, and you're kind of looking for another game to play? 
What's kind of the strength of Gamma Wolves? Um, so the strength of Gamma Wolves is probably going to be two things. One, if you're a big fan of giant robots, then you got something to do the giant robots after so, the wall. So if you, if you already have like a collection of Gundam figures, just go buy some bases and some blue talk and stick them down, and you're you're done. Like, yeah, you did it. You're you're playing Gamma Wolves now. <laughs> like, that's that's about as much work as you're going to need to do to be able to play. Um, and then I would say that if you're playing a Song of Ice and Fire, um, and this is your your kind of game, it, it, a Song of Ice and Fire very much has that same alternating activation sort of like like psychology to it, where you are trying to not just think about where your opponent's going to be, you know what I mean, at, at the next activation, but like I'm going to do these three things, and at the same time he has the ability to do five other things. What's the worst one that could happen to me, and how do I keep him from accomplishing the thing he's trying to accomplish right now? That's pretty much where Gamma Wolf's DNA kind of heads to and says, I'm never out of this game turn, right? Like, I, I can't sleep on anything because there's never a time where I'm not the one that's got to go next and make another decision that's going to affect the outcome of this game. Um, and they have those, the games have those things in common. Heck, I'm just looking forward to like, I mean, you don't need a lot to play this game. Like, you could pick up your book. It's going to be on sale soon. And you get and you your book get and you get some bases and you're like ready to go. And I get to paint some cool mechs that I'm not typically, like, you know, you know, people probably are aware I play free folk. I've been painting like just batches of fur for the past like that two was my, years. That was my next thing. I was like, if you're a painter, painting five models is probably a lot less daunting than, yeah. uh, than painting like, like a, a gajillion miniatures. Right. Um, and you can spend some time on it too. That's the thing I like about a game like Gamble Wolves is that, Every now and again, because I paint a lot of miniatures every year, I, I paint close to a thousand miniatures a year, usually in, in a, an average year for GMG. Um, I really do like to just take a week and slow down and just kind of like savor building and painting something. Mm -hmm. And and that was the second sort of like ingredient in a game like this is let people enjoy making the miniatures they they want to make because there's no rush to get your Gamble Wolf team done. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not going to be it's not going to be a, a thousand miniatures right it's right I, I really want to thematically you know what i mean like like get this this robot right that i'm enjoying like my my gypsy danger or whatever that i want to i want to build um and so so i'm gonna i'm gonna spend a little bit extra time painting it and like weathering it maybe trying some paint techniques i've done before like airbrushing or battle damage or you know weathering compounds or whatever like it's it's that kind of game where i think you're gonna see some knowing the internet the way i do and having seen even just the stuff that like the folks that were helping me play test it and who've um been around in the gamble group for a while have done like the the amount of talent and time people put into this so far when it was just an idea and it wasn't even a game yet, it's been pretty astonishing i'm i'm pretty pumped to see what people who actually have like a robot in their hands come up with and if you're listening head on over to the facebook page uh it's a uh, facebook group it's gamma wolves uh, o period FB period G official Facebook group. Yep. Yeah. And uh, people are already posting some amazing things in there. And it's cool yeah, seeing people points. like smaller, smaller miniatures, but also like 28 millimeter, but also people putting their like, you know, full size Gundams that they're like repainting yeah. to look better than like store bought. Like, or, con or converting. There's a lot of kit bashes in there. Um, I think what's really cool is too, if you're lost as to like ideas as to where to get miniatures. They're like daily. Someone's like, I found this on Amazon. It's some, like just obscure, like, like Mecca uh, company that has made like some really cool miniatures. And it's usually too, like there, people are finding like really kind of affordable stuff, like the 30 minute mission stuff's there and some of the iron blooded orphans and a lot of like the sort of like more classic gunplay stuff. But there's a lot of just like kind of off brown Mecca kits too. 
um, that you can find on Amazon that are like, I, I'm blown away by where I'm like, how's, how is this like the off brand stuff? <laughs> what is, what is, what is happening here? These are crazy, you know, and, and they're super cool. So I think if you're, if you're looking at it from the point of view of like, I've never really made like one of these kits before, <clears throat> I'm not sure where to start. That's a great, like resource just, uh, to join in and even just do it like a big long scroll down to the bottom. Um, of posts and see what people are posting up because there's there's tons of like inspiration in there just to just even more to source things. And so, uh, where can people get Gamma Wolves? When does it release? So and, it's November twenty sixth uh, is the official release date, um, and you can uh, because it's Osprey, it means you can really buy it anywhere. Like you can get it on Amazon, you can get it on Barnes and Noble um, in Canada, you can get a Chapters Indigo, um, you can get it at your local game store if they carry Osprey products. So if you've seen a Frostgrave book in your local game store, then that means they have access to all the Osprey stuff and you can go and ask them there, um, to get it. And, uh, other than that, you can go directly to, like, if you want to get the, the ebook, there's usually, um, a physical and ebook bundle, uh, on the like actual Osprey website, which you can get, um, just by going to Osprey Publishing's main page. And there should be a link to Osprey Games. Oh, and the last last thing I forgot to mention, man, the art uh, Jan Burgay, uh yeah, looks amazing. Also, you can check out on on ArtStation some of his yeah. stuff. But whew, good good choice there, sir. He's super talented. So we actually went. He was actually um, he is uh, 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 like I think perfect for the look we were kind of trying to go for, which is very much like the kind of nineteen eighties uh packaging of like mecha model kits and mecha comics so he had it it again we did this kind of like comic book conceit with last days and we kept that with gamma wolves um and i think his art just kind of nailed it because it's got yeah. this like it's this like kind of future punk diesel punk kind of look to it where it's slick but it's also beat up i don't know he's got kind of a mobius thing going on if mobius drew robots uh and the color palette's kind of mobius too i really i really like his stuff absolutely amazing well thank you so much for coming on the podcast yeah thank you man and in the meantime hope we get your miniatures on the table <laughs>